So this is a, a psalm that is from the sons of Korah. Um, this is a psalm, mine has a little subtitle, uh, it's not in the Hebrew, but it just says, Thirsting for God and Trouble in Exile. And um, this is one of my favorite psalms, as all those psalms are one of my favorite psalms, but nonetheless, I like this one, it's been put to music, uh, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so I, my soul... Uh, that's a great song. Yeah, that's, it's wonderful. And so I, I uh, that's what came to mind this morning as I was uh, preparing for uh, our um, picking up on our study in the intertestamental period. Um, it's a it's a psalm where uh, the people had been uh, displaced. So um, it's an exile psalm. It's uh, a psalm where. Um, that which had been promised and they had had a taste of, they were uh, separated from it for a period of time. And so they were recalling the promise and reminding themselves of God's loving kindness, that he's with them day and night. And so it's appropriate for where we are. It's appropriate certainly for where uh, the people were in the time that it was written. Um, so we're looking at the intertestamental period, and I can't remember exactly where I left off. I think we were talking about uh, Septuagint. Take a look here. Um, I think we were talking about Septuagint and um, how that came about. We uh, looked at the eras. Maybe that's a good place to start. Um, so if we look at what uh, what happened as a result of uh, Israel's disobedience, they ended up um, rejecting God as king and ended up, because of their idolatry, going into exile. And that exile happened uh, first to the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes there were uh, conquered by the Assyrians and were completely defeated and not ever completely repopulated in the land. They came back as Samaritans and other um, syncretic forms of a mix of their cultic practice. Um, but they, they didn't maintain the purity of uh, the bloodline, even though they attempted to reestablish that. The Babylonians came in and conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, Judah had absorbed Simeon at that point in time. And so the, the two tribes there were absorbed in. Um, and when they went into exile, that's where the name Jews came from. So what we call the Jews today is really those that remnant that was a result of the Babylonian exile when they were conquered there. And what I can say is, is for a people group, that was like a nuclear event in that day. They, uh, they were... Uh, taken out of the land, all that was left in the land were the poor and those that could work the land for the captors. Um, the royalty and rulers had all been, uh, leadership had all been removed um, from power and uh, puppet rulers who were put in play. Um, they, Jerusalem was completely leveled and uh, the, the walls were torn down, the temple was destroyed, 
And that was really important. Why was that important for the Hebrew, Hebrew peoples? Why was the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed so impactful? Well, it was a theocracy. The structure of it, so it was destroyed the center of their Yes. David. Is that also the thought where the Messiah would come? So the hope of Messiah would so come through the line of David, and here's the the, uh, the king being removed. The last uh, the last king was Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, and uh, he went into captivity. Right. So the end of the line of David, maybe. Yeah, the the, the uh, so I so your comment is, um, do the original twelve tribes did they remain even yes. though the Assyrians had conquered and and yes, but in a very diluted sense for the the northern kingdom, um, and we see that because we know in the the end times those tribes are called out by name, right, and so and that's that's the hope and that's the promise. And the reason why is because there were two things that were distinctive for the people group. One was um, their God, Yahweh, and that uh, the place where they would uh, commune with God was at the temple. So the temple was central to how um, not only they practiced their religion as far as religious practice, but it was central to their relationship with God. And the second piece is similar, and you mentioned Jerusalem and the temple. Um, Jerusalem being the, the center of the nation, this was a nation that was set apart by God, not because they were really cool and smart and special. Rather, they weren't really cool. They weren't really smart. They're pretty stupid, and they, they definitely um, were not special. They were no different in many ways than the people around them, but God chose them out for a purpose, for his purpose, to be a, uh, a nation of priests. That they would, uh, so if we look at the roles that occur um, as God deals with man, we've talked about the three roles of the prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet being the one who brings uh, the revelation of God to humanity, right? So that's the perspective, is from God to man. The priest is the one who brings humanity to God. So they're the ones that, as a result of the revelation and understanding um, the lost access to God because of separation of sin, we no longer, um, by nature, have access to God, nor do we have fellowship with God. So there's two aspects of that. So atonement is dealing with that and... uh, um, Forgiveness of sin and restoration, reconciliation has to do with that as far as gaining access. Well, that's what uh, the priestly role 
was to be, was to be that mediation for the world, in a sense, to bring the world to God. So a very important um, calling on the, the Hebrew children, right? And they lost that because they were no longer a nation. And they no longer had the temple, the center of, of their worship. Um, that was destroyed. And that's what they were, the, that was the, the primary problems that they were then struggling with after the captivity. So they had been taken off. Um, we know that under Babylonian rule that um, they established um, themselves within Babylon. They started recovering as a people group. They started having um, commerce. They started in, um, becoming part of the culture around them and interacting. But they always tried to stay separate and distinct. They always tried to remain Jewish, as we would call it today. Yeah. Yes? Uh, in answer to the question about the different tribes, uh, when Christ was brought to the temple to dedicate him, uh, there was a prophetess by the name of Anna that says that she was of the tribe of Asher, of all things. Right. <laughs> I mean, Asher right. was one of those far-out tribes. I mean, they, were, they, they were, but the, I think the, the primary difference is, is that they didn't um, maintain that, that distinctive... Uh, even though absolutely they're there, they didn't have quite the distinctive that uh, Judah had. Right, right. But I mean, they were from the ten tribes, you know. Right. So they, right. So they're still there. They're, they, the godly people are still around someplace. Yep. Well, and, and that was one of the things that was happening in that intertestamental time because they had uh, potentially lost their identity as a people and they had lost their place of communion with God. Um, the, the things that were key to them were rebuilding the temple and reestablishing their identity. And so they, um, and that's what you see happening in Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. Tim? So if you look at this time period from God's perspective, it actually was a very important time period. Yes. Because he sends his son at the end, you know, at the end of this, the, the true king. Um, so I mean, this thing calls it 400 silent years, right? I, I don't. I, I guess I don't understand that. I mean, there is the Maccabees thing that's in the Catholic Bible. I mean, why would it be silent before Christ come, coming in? And I mean, there has to be some bigger picture here. That well, there is a bigger picture going on. I mean, it's the preparation for the coming of. Of Messiah. So the preparation is disaster. <laughs> yeah, so it's called the 400 silent years because the last uh, prophetic um, <laughs> recording that we have is Malachi. Right? So we do have some prophetic writing in that period, Haggai, Zechariah. Um, those prophetic writings um, are speaking specifically to the problem of the temple and focus on rebuilding the temple and that place of communion with God and uh, understanding that they have the very purpose that God called them for in the beginning, they still have, even though they're a conquered people. So the, uh, Zechariah, um, if you look on it on the whole, it, it's a message of hope. By the way, you know, 
Messiah is coming. The, the one from the line of David, who is the redeemer, not just of Israel, but the whole world, uh, is coming, and Israel has a part in that. Well, I guess my question is more of, um, of how things were decided to be put in the canon, if you will. Because this was an important time of right. Jewish writings, right. you said a few weeks ago. Yes. Where they came out with the Talmud and yep. you know, all these different things. So, but, but, but we call it silent. So We call it silent. There was a lot of writing going on, actually. <laughs> but the writing was changing. Right, so it's it was um, one type of writing in Hebrew recording uh, the prophets, and there were some writings in Aramaic, but primarily in Hebrew that was uh, the law, the prophets, and what are called the writings, some of the historical pieces that we have, as well as the wisdom literature, um, and in that in that uh, period of time that happened afterwards, so there. Um, working on their identity, and, and just kind of looking at this, they go from the Babylonian to the Persian rule um, to the Greeks, and we spent some time talking about the Greeks. That was a very influential. These two, I mean, you remember the statue in Daniel, and you have the head of gold, Babylon, and then you have the um, the breast, and and as it goes down, you see the the significance, the impact of these um, conquerors on Israel. And what happened is there was a group in the east, even in the time of the Greek domination, um, because that's where they were originally taken. They were taken into Babylon. They were taken into that area in the Middle East that uh, under Persian rule, and they settled there. And they became prosperous there. And in fact, when the king uh, instructed them to go back and rebuild the temple, um, the 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 storehouses um, of the treasury of Israel was in that eastern Persian uh, area. And so that was kind of the launching ground. So as they're establishing um, and maintaining their identity through uh, codification of the oral law, um, there was a significant Persian, called it eastern influence. But there was also a Western influence, and that's when we looked at the Greeks, when the Greeks came in and conquered, and then the Greeks, uh, Alexander the Great died, and the kingdom was divided, um, and it broke into a north and a south piece, and then the Romans intruded through Macedonia at one point. But um, under Greek rule, that split between the east and the west became more pronounced. And the group in the west... Um, which did not have, it had influence through the Ptolemies over Palestine at that point in time, adopted the culture heavily. So we call that Hellenism, right, Hellenistic. And that um, they were adopting the language. In fact, if, what I did is I passed out my notes. I probably didn't make enough copies, and that's okay. I can make more copies for you. The first page that you have is just a, a chart that I pulled off the Internet that kind of gives you timeline of what's going on. The rest is my notes that I've compiled and I will apologize for uh, right now for the misspellings and grammar errors because parts of it are stream of consciousness. Uh, part of it is emerged from one of the guys in our Friday night study. So, but if you read through my notes, and I don't read through it now, that's a mistake. You, know, you get the handout. Don't do that. Don't pay attention to the handout and read that later. Um, 
But what happened is, is that their language changed. So they were able to, to uh, keep their identity, but they started becoming more and more and more a part of the culture to the point where um, they completely abandoned uh, Hebrew as their, as their language. And, they, and it became um, to the point where they, they had to have uh, you know, interpreters to interpret the Hebrew uh, writings for the people that were speaking Greek and were studying Greek. And so in that period of time under the Ptolemies um, is when the, uh, as part of bringing those Hebrew uh, scriptures into uh, the library, they uh, put together 72 scholars to bring that in. At least they did the Torah, and they did it in a very short period of time. And then all of the, the prophets and the writings were brought in, and that's what we call today the Septuagint, to remember the 70. David? Uh, what is Aramaic? Where does it come from? What's the root of Aramaic that was spoken? Oh, you would probably know that better than me. Munkin <laughs> Mar. I don't know. Um, I don't know either. Um, other than that, it was a it was a common language. So, it I mean, there was the language of commerce, and then there was kind of like what everybody else spoke. Uh -huh. That's the way I understand it. Yeah. I'll look at it. Greek was the language of commerce, right? It says it's closely related to Hebrew. It's just a Semitic language. Yeah, it's a language. Semitic language, but... Uh, hmm. So you would probably, you guys would probably understand the root of the language better than me, but I know that that was a language that was spoken, um, and that that kind of got adopted from the Eastern side. So when I, I mentioned the Persian, the Persian influence... And when we look at the, the codification of the writings, so first there was the, the Mishnah, which is the codification of the oral law. So there was the written law, the Torah, and then there was the, the oral law that had been carried down through the, the scribes and, and the priestly line. And that needed, when they got taken into captivity, they were concerned about losing that. So they codified it, they wrote it down, that became the Mishnah. The, the oral law that later became incorporated in the Talmud which was, we talk about the Babylonian Talmud so that would be the eastern influence on those writings and capturing that and Aramaic it was some, some of those uh, writings are in Aramaic and some of them are in Hebrew um, under the Greek, the split to the, to the west um, it was exclusively Greek so in Palestine, that area in between, so if we look at the map of the area, um, so you've got uh, Israel here, in that area right there. It's the land in between. So you've got Egypt down here, and if I zoom out, you'll see uh, Syria and uh, Mesopotamia and parts of Iraq, Babylon. Um, and so when these guys, the east and the west, are fighting, they're coming right through here, right? So uh, who controls Palestine as a, um, a route to get through, you know, the trade routes, was important. It wasn't important because they were an important people. It was important because they were strategically located in the middle, and you had to go through there. Um, whether you were going out to the sea to create a, a 
naval force, whether you were coming by land, coming through. So under the original, the Ptolemaic influence, that area in the early part, and that's what shows in this chart. Um, so if you look at this chart, I'm going to point you towards the bottom here. Uh, it has, this one have Maybe Hebrew, Aramaic, is that you're looking for at the bottom? Yeah, Aramaic. Yeah, it's language at the bottom. And the reason why is because of the influence of the, uh, the Ptolemies, mm -hmm. and this one doesn't have it. I can bring you up another one that does. Let me see if I've got it. Hey, Dave. Yeah. thing on the internet says uh, Aramaic was used by the conquering Assyrians as a language of administration communication, hmm. and following them by the Babylonian Persian empires, which ruled in the Ethiopia. And employed Aramaic as the official language. Okay. So that would be the origin of it. Then would be in that that part of uh, Assyria, Babylon, that part of the empire. But the idea is is that under the under the Greek rule, there was a north and a south faction. The north faction was essentially the east. It had a lot of Persian influence. Um, the South faction was uh, the Egyptian faction. And that's where uh, they were strongly Greek. And so the Hellenistic works in that period of time, let me go back to the map. There's another chart I wanted to show you that actually shows, because there was a transition between the northern and southern Greek empires. So even though it was originally divided up, uh, among five generals and then four um, that uh, basically deteriorated to two and so you have predominantly northern kingdom of the Greeks and southern kingdom of the Greeks the southern kingdom of the Greeks were very powerful in Palestinian region for uh, the majority of the time but it, as time progressed and you look at the timeline uh, the Silvius said um, Greek Influence pushed down all the way down to Egypt, and the Ptolemaic uh, influence was less. And at that point, you got a different kind of uh, influence on the writing, and a different kind of influence on the politics, and a different kind of influence on what was going on in the culture. And under the Hellenistic Greek writing, there was a lot of writing that went on. There was the Septuagint, which was initially done to capture the law, but then it continued over a period of time. Um, and got all of the Hebrew scriptures uh, converted. But they also had a bunch of other writings. They had the Mishnah part that they were codifying. They also had a bunch of uh, extra-biblical, we would call it today, writings, which we call the Apocrypha. Right? So that Apocrypha was also written in that time. And they weren't part of the canon of scripture because they weren't of prophetic utterance. Rather, they were more of a struggle between how they were learning to be Greek um, and maintain their, their Hebrew identity. So the Greeks had a very significantly different understanding of the world than Hebrews do and than we do. Um, we believe there is one God and that he is the God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And that this God is, is personal and that we commune with him and that that's by his desire, his choice. And 
that, that so that's different than the Greek uh, system of gods, understanding their order of gods and their philosophy and what was happening is these people now have been transplanted into this part of the world down here and they're settling they need to uh, do commerce they're, they're establishing families and farms and businesses and all this kind of stuff going on and at the same time they're having to wrestle with putting the truths about their uh, religion, their cultic practice and the truth of God into uh, a new cultural uh, paradigm and so a lot of the apocryphal writings are about that. They're about how you would merge uh, some of the Greek philosophy with uh, the truth of Hebrew scripture. So they're not prophetic. Rather, they're scholarly, um, philosophical writings. And sometimes you actually have some of the wisdom literature in there. So a lot of times when I look at, when I look at the Bible... And I'm looking, so before I read anything, I say, okay, what genre is it? What's the, what can I expect to uh, stylistically understand and organizationally understand about how what I'm getting ready to read is, is put together? And I understand that there are two major perspectives. One is a prophetic perspective. And that would include a lot of narratives. So we have uh, historical uh, prophetic narrative sections like Samuel, right, or Kings. Those are part of the prophets, and it's a prophetic perspective. But then there's another perspective, and, and what I would say is that perspective is from God to man. Then there's another perspective, which is a response of that revelation from God to man, back to God from man. And I call that the wisdom perspective. So the wisdom literature classically we would understand as uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon... Uh, in the New Testament, you would see James in that um, kind of vein of um, wisdom literature, a response to revelation. Um, so when you see uh, organization around that response, and some of that wisdom literature in the apocryphal is that kind of literature. It's a response to the revelation of God, but it's wrestling with the cultural problem of the day, which is Greek. And the understanding of uh, what Greeks believe about the nature of reality. Right? What is the nature of reality? Um, so, I'll ask you guys. What is the nature of reality? How do you see what is, what is real and true? What is it? God. What did you say? God. God. So that we understand that there is a spiritual reality. So if we were to look at um, the current um, philosophy of the day um, or a worldview of the day, um, so modernism, postmodernism, the idea there, um, which is very depressing, is that there is no God. That how all of this came to be is not fully answered, but nonetheless it does not involve personal being with you know creative intelligence that put all this into play you know maybe that people will kind of step into the creative design um, 
side of the camp and they'll say, well, yeah, it really looks like there's some intelligence behind this. You know, if you look at information theory, it says that it wasn't just random. But nonetheless, it won't acknowledge that that is, is God, right? And the end of that is, if there is no God, then um, the best you can do is master the machine. So the, the uh, worldview of the modern era is um, you've got this immensely complex machine, and we want to take it apart and understand it so that we can master it and overcome the problems that we have. The problems are, what's the number one problem? Death. Death. That's right. And you can either um, accept that, well, my life really doesn't have any meaning personally, but it has meaning in the overall uh, universe playing itself out, this great song, right? Um, or you can try and bring meaning to it. You can try and bring personal meaning. And so when we look at how people struggle with that in this idea that there is no God, that, that anything that exists in reality is just you and your, your perception of it and interpretation of it, um, you get into, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the worldview. Anyway, it's, it's uh, basically where, where the only meaning that there is is that which you bring. And the end result of that is, is, is nihilism. So uh, nihilism would be the despair that comes knowing that there is no hope outside of yourself. What's the worldview, Karen? I point it out every time we watch uh, that movie about with Tom Hanks about the hidden on the <laughs> desert island. Oh. I can't remember. Pardon? Pardon? Yep. Oh no, the other castaway. Yeah, castaway. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's a that's a particular worldview. So here he is stuck on an island. He has no control over anything that's going on. He has to master the machine. He has to survive. He has to bring any meaning there is. And at one point, he gets to despair. He tries to hang himself. So that is the progression of that worldview into nihilism. Which is where our culture is. Which is where our culture is. And you take that to the extreme where if you have to bring meaning, that meaning can either come from a group or it can come individually to the point where it de uh, degenerates into postmodernism. Um, and postmodernism is, you know, whatever floats your boat, it's all good. It's hedonism. Pardon? Hedonism? Hedonism is what you No, it's not hedonism. It's, uh, I can't think of it. <laughs> I, I, should, I should know the stuff off the top of my head. My brain is blocked this morning. But anyway, um, that's not the worldview, even though the, the, the Greek worldview couldn't tolerate that. So they had to create a spiritual worldview as well. And so they had the physical elements and the spiritual elements. And you talk about the quintessence, the fifth element. right? So they had the four physical elements, was the earth, wind, fire and water. And, uh, and the fifth element they called the logos. Is it? That which is the organizing intelligence pantheism? of the universe. Pardon? Pantheism? No, it's not pen, pen, Naturalism, or pantheism. Naturalism, Oh, well, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. Um, because uh, the Greeks couldn't tolerate that either because you have to have hope. Otherwise, you know, you, you end up killing yourself. And, uh, and there are I mean, people that embrace that and go down that road, and, and there is no um, 
there is no end. Uh, I mean, they just want annihilation. And but another worldview is no, there is a spiritual aspect to this world. Um, and the Greeks then recognized that and put together a system of gods and a, a philosophy around that. Uh, and that's what the Hebrews were coming in. They were saying, yeah, we have this spiritual worldview. We have a dualistic worldview. There's the material and the immaterial. Um, and they're trying to superimpose it upon the Greek culture. So that's where, um, or the Greek culture is being superimposed upon that understanding. And so that's where you got a lot of the apocryphal writings. And the, the Hebrews were desperately hanging on in this battle between the north and the south to try and keep their identity. And their identity was all around the temple, the priesthood within that temple, and then their um, part in history. Right? And so when you, what happens if you look at it as history plays out and these guys get caught in a squeeze... Um, the priesthood is the area that gets attacked. And the temple is the area that gets attacked. The Ptolemies basically said to um, the, the Hebrews, they said, or to the Jews, they said, you can keep your identity, you can keep your cultic practice, you can keep um, your temple, um, and we're not going to muck with your priesthood, just pay us our taxes. Right? And so they let them live peacefully. And there was a long period of peace under the Ptolemies. When the Seleucids came down and they pushed down through here and they were trying to, to grab the Ptolemaic kingdom, um, they changed that. They said, no, your religion's actually a problem for us. We want you to have our Greek religion that we're going to impose upon you. Our system of gods. And... Um, but in order to control the people, uh, they uh, acquiesced to certain cultic practices, of, like the priesthood. They recognized that there were emerging leaders um, that were the high priests and a, a group that was growing. Uh, there were some zealots that were growing that later became the Pharisees. And then there were some uh, very influential uh, property owners, because that's another thing that happens when you have a lot of transitions going on, is that the poor get poorer and the rich get richer and so there was a lot of land grab stuff going on well they made a grab for the priesthood they said we're going we're gonna to allow you to buy the priesthood and so there was a priest that got in there as a result of a Seleucid uh, intrusion by a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV and or Antiochus IV Epiphanes and he came through and in his dealings trying to conquer the Ptolemies, um, he took Palestine and his, what he needed was tribute. He just needed treasure so that he could stock his armies and all the stuff that was going on. And there was a, a play made for the priesthood where um, somebody not of descendant of Aaron bought the high priest role so that they could have influence and power. And it created uh, an uprising, a stir. And when that stir happened, um, Antiochus uh, IV just said, okay, we're done. And he basically took out the temple. And he repurposed it for uh, 
Greek gods. So he took and, uh, and defiled what was, so the, the altar of burnt incense, he sacrificed a pig on it, he set up a, um, a temple where the, the Holy of Holies was, um, where the high priest would come in and make the sacrifice um, for atonement on the Day of Atonement. Um, he took and put uh, uh, an image of Zeus and defiled that whole temple area. And he basically said, okay, you're no longer your, your Jewish identity and your cultic practice through the temple is gone. Well, that created a revolt um, because there were very zealous people. So there was a guy by the name of, um, and I'm going to get his name wrong, Mattathias? Mattathias. Um, of the line of the Maccabees. And he had some sons that, um, so Mattathias started the revolt, and his sons, one of which was Judas, um, became uh, the leaders of this revolution, and they basically took, over a very short period of years, took that temple area back, and in a guerrilla warfare, took the temple and rededicated it, and that's where we get Hanukkah from. And I think that's where we were last week. Right? <laughs> <laughs> not, not where we ended up last week? <laughs> so, telling the story, and you all seemed interested, so it must have been more than just introduction. Um, but that brings us up, so we're looking at the eras, and what the influence on the people is, and what the influence on the writing is. Maybe we said more about the apocryphal writings, that's not what I want This one here. So we see that uh, in, under the Greek conquering, there's the Egyptian rule, the Ptolemies, there's the Syrian rule, um, the Seleucids. Each had different influences on Palestine as to one, what the language of commerce was, or one, uh, another, what the, uh, the common language was, whether it was Aramaic or Greek. So you get a mix going on. Um, it had to do, it also influenced um, the formation of uh, what became the Samaritans, because the Samaritans, under this whole challenge that happened with the temple uh, and the priests, uh, set up their own uh, temple, essentially their own place of worship uh, on Mount Gerizim. And all of that emerged in that intertestamental period until you get down to this Hasmonean era, era where the Maccabees starting with uh, Matthias, went into revolt and said, hold it, we're going to retain our identity and we are going to preserve our temple, our place where we commune with God. And that started a period that lasted about 100 years until the Romans finally came in and uh, put a stop to it. At the end of this Hasmonean era, there was uh, a group called, uh, I'll call them the Herods, Herod the Great. Uh, that's the reason we call them the Herods, because Herod was, uh, in the midst of this turmoil, um, the peoples that were in surrounding areas near Israel, so this area over here, uh, Edom, and um, this area up in here, uh, Ammon and, and Moab, um, they were forced to become Jews 
because as these power plays were going on with uh, the Seleucids and the Hasmonean revolt, these people end up having becoming. Uh, they were already conquered, but they uh, had a, a stronger uh, rule over their life, so they weren't given as much independence. And this area of Edom was sucked into the Jewish cultic practice, but they weren't of the tribes of Israel. Right? So they were like proselyte Jews. And one of the families of those proselyte Jews was the family of this guy named Herod. And uh, his father, his name was Antipater, Antipater um, was uh, Idumean, so he was from this region. He had become Jew and or adopted the practice, the religious cultist practice of the Jews. His son Herod became a big powerful player in all of this political intrigue that was going on. And Herod got caught in the middle, because this is the land in the middle. It's not that Herod was, inher Herod was inherently powerful, um, but he was in the right place at the right time, and he was a very smooth operator, and he was ruthless. He was willing to do what it takes to get power. There were times when he aligned with the south, and there were times when he aligned with the north, the Romans, as the Romans came in. And he ultimately um, was under... Um, all, everything that happened with the Romans as they came in and the end of the Ptolemaic line. And if you look at the notes that I have, let me take you to my notes. Okay, so I'm going to zip you through my notes. I have some charts in here of the different dynasties. So these are the, the Ptolemies. And you'll notice that the Ptolemies and in this time frame right here um, with one of the Ptolemaic rulers being Cleopatra the Seventh. This is the Cleopatra. There were other Cleopatras. Uh, this is the Cleopatra that um, made the name famous because she got involved with a ruler from the north, and they got married and uh, ended up getting caught in this, this battle that was going on. And if we go down a little bit further, so we've got the... Seleucids up through um, up through Antiochus. So this was uh, the era Antiochus IV. Where's Antiochus IV? Antiochus IV. This is the era when the Hasmoneans started the Maccabees. And so you see that there's still a lot going on in the north. There's still a lot going on in the south. It didn't really end until the Romans came in and finally. Uh, I think it was Octavius that, that conquered and put an end to uh, Cleopatra. So there's a lot of details in the notes, and so if you're interested in knowing exactly, yeah, so civil war broke, this is on page 21 of my notes, civil war broke out among the Octavian Caesar and Anthony and Cleopatra. Y'all have heard of Anthony and Cleopatra, right? Um, Defeated by Caesar in a sea battle, Anthony and Cleopatra fled back to Egypt where they committed suicide. Octavian was now undisputed master of the Roman world. And that then brings in the time when Herod uh, officially was uh, made the king of Palestine. And he was a puppet king. 
He wasn't an independent king. He had Roman sanction to be in, in rule over that that part of the country. A lot so of those rulers didn't last very long. They didn't last very long. I mean, there was a lot of intrigue and a lot of stuff going on. Let me see. I think I got another drama. Yeah, a lot of drama. Yeah. Could you Pardon? Question back there. Sure. We had Solomon's temple and Ezra rebuilt after they came back to temple. Yep. What was Herod's temple? Was there a third? So Herod, even though the, the Jews all hated him because he claimed to be Jewish, but he wasn't. He was in Mia. And not only that, but he was ruthless. Pretty much everybody hated Herod because he killed a lot of people. So, um, but he was uh, a great builder. So one of the things he, he could do is um, he could amass uh, political influence and money and armies when he needed it. And I mean, he moved one top of a hill to another hill just because he wanted the hill heights to be different. You know, I mean, the guy was amazing. Um, he built at Caesarea. He put in uh, at the sea. He poured concrete foundations that still are there to this day. So he mastered the chemistry that is involved in uh, pouring concrete underwater and, and did that. Um, he um, rebuilt that Temple Mount to what it became in the time of Jesus. He made it so bigger, right? He made it bigger, he fortified it, he but put in colonnades. Ezra's temple was still there, he just... Um, the temple was still there. So, right, but the, the rebuilt temple was never of the glory of Solomon's temple. But Herod wanted to make it so. Okay, okay, okay that makes sense. Because I remember when in Ezra it says that the, when, when they were laying it, the old men that had seen the original ground, right. the new people were excited. So, so that makes sense. Yep, yeah, and so... Um, so the Wailing Wall and all that is what came with Herod yep. to make that area more beautiful, even though the temple was right. from uh, after the exile and then was destroyed in 70 AD or whatever. Right. And so that whole building scheme for Herod started right after his appointment officially as king. So it started back in around 30 BC. Up at the end when Cleopatra and Anthony went back and committed suicide, and he went to the Roman Senate, uh, and uh, with Octavian's influence, was granted kingship of uh, Palestine. He went back and he started rebuilding the temple. That progressed all the way through Jesus' time. It took a number of years to complete. Well, you're saying rebuilding the temple. Well, it's not so... Is it the temple or what's around the it temple? It's what's yes. around the temple. It's okay. the temple mount. Okay. Yeah. 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 Because the, all of the temple practice was still going on. But what had changed is that the high priest was no longer a descendant of Aaron. Because under the what happened with the selling the high priesthood, you ended up uh, essentially, and Herod supported this. You know, It's like, let's control people through, through the cultic practice. Um, at one point, they, it became... Uh, someone who had bought the priesthood, and I detail it in the notes, and then their descendants had the right to become high priest. So the high priest that sentenced Jesus to death was not a descendant of Aaron. Correct. 
and um, and of course the temple was ultimately destroyed and that whole uh, cultic practice where the high priest has to bring in the uh, atoning sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice to the uh, mercy seat that would have officially ended in their idea of cultic practice in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed um, we understand that it ended when Christ died and brought the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, before the true mercy seat in heaven. And the evidence of that was that the separation between um, holy God and his people was torn. That curtain was torn from top to bottom so that we now have access to the mercy seat. Um, but before that, it was always through the high priest. So all of that intrigue happened in that 100-year period of time, preceding uh, when Herod came in, when the high priesthood became uh, institutionalized through a different family, um, and it was actually part of, uh, influenced by the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body. Um, and then the, the Pharisees um, were so zealous in preserving that which was codified, they actually kind of lost sight of what it was that they were zealous about, and that they became involved in that political intrigue and power plays as well. That's And Jesus spoke against that. Right? He spoke against that leadership of the day. Um, but he wasn't there to overthrow that leadership. He was there to fulfill the promise of God. 